0: If you would please take a copy of God's Word and turn to the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 4, verse 23, Acts 4, verses 23 through 31. It's uh, been a couple weeks since we looked at the book of Acts together. Just a brief reminder, beginning of chapter 3, Peter heals a man who's lame from birth Then they preach the gospel. They get arrested for that. The Jewish leaders tell them that we'd really like it if you'd stop preaching the gospel. They politely declined to do that, uh, but ultimately they realized the futility of that and they release them. That's where our story picks up. <clears throat> Acts 4 verses 23 through 31. Hear God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Thus ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. Let's ask his blessings as we consider his word this morning. Let's pray. Holy God, Heavenly Father, we come before you. We need your help. We need your help to hear what you have to say to us. We need your help be able to understand it, we need your help to be able to respond to it, to do what you command us. Give us your spirit, give us ears to hear all that you have to say to your people. Speak to us, Lord, for your servants are listening. This we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Who has been most wronged in this story? Who's been most sinned against? Is it Peter? Is it John? Is it their friends? Is it their church? How about God himself? Doesn't God have the biggest beef here, the biggest bone to pick? Wasn't his message of salvation banned by the Jewish leaders? Wasn't his glory robbed in the process? Last week, I said the, I said that righteous anger, it's primarily offended for God's sake. And then two weeks ago, Josh told us the, the Israelites in 1 Samuel 8, they were ultimately rejecting God when they asked for a king like all the nations. And this week, it's little more of the same the biggest problem here it's not the denial of civil rights though that's a big deal the biggest problem is that someone has denied the truth of God's Word they've tried to suppress God's healing power his gospel message the Jewish leaders they are ultimately rebelling against God now why mention all that because you see Peter John their friends the early church they see that and it makes a difference they understand that this is not about one group versus another. It's about God, the creator versus his rebellious creatures. That's the ultimate battle. God's people are merely caught in the crossfire of a cosmic battle. When I say caught, I don't mean helplessly caught They're, they're caught, but they're not condemned, if you will, because the Lord reigns in the midst of all this. So while this cosmic battle rages on Earth, God will empower his humble servants to be bold witnesses to his sovereign grace. That's what we see this morning. We see it unfold in five points. Let's look at it. The first one, the servants released. The servants released. You see it in verse 23. Let's read that. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Now, I did this a minute ago. We're going to review the the book of Acts these last couple chapters here, because this is the culmination of nearly two chapters, nearly 50 verses. The beginning of chapter 3, again, Peter heals a lame man. He tells him to rise and walk in the name of Jesus, and then he preaches a sermon about the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, about forgiveness of sin through faith in Jesus. And then they, him and John, <clears throat> they get arrested by the Jewish authorities, the ones who crucified Jesus. who. Can't seem to come to terms with their the truth about themselves or their sin. And they also order these men not to preach in this name. And again, Peter and John, they respectfully decline. They recognize the authority. They they respect that authority. They're prepared to pay the consequences. By God's grace, because the people are praising God because of this miracle, the leaders let them go. That's where we are. They're released. Now, was there persecution here? Yes. Were God's apostles ultimately released? Yes. Is that a promise that we will never suffer injustice for the name of Christ? Of course not. 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But shouldn't we also notice the, the way that God delivers them through this injustice here? It makes me think of another. Passage in 2 Timothy 1 chapter later, chapter 4 verse 18, Paul says the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. He was in prison when he wrote that. And Paul, of course, there refers to a heavenly rescue, not necessarily an earthly rescue. But I think that's probably why Paul was able to endure the earthly persecution he faced. But Back to Peter and John in Acts 4. Notice this as we go forward. They didn't see their situation primarily as a battle between us and them, between Christians and non-Christians, Christians and Jews, or even between Christians and the government. Their battle was not with flesh and blood or with law and order, even corrupt law and order as we see in this passage, the one before it. They knew the ultimate battle that was raging was between the Lord and between his rebellious creatures. Was there a human element to it? Of course there was. So are we, are we still allowed to care about injustice, about the rights of citizens, including Christians? Of course. Paul was concerned about that. Later in the book of Acts, he will appeal his case all the way to Caesar, the equivalent of the Supreme Court back then. And along the way, Paul would witness to the Roman rulers, even as they kept him in jail for doing nothing wrong. To use Peter's words to describe Paul's actions, when reviled, he did not revile in return. Of course, Peter was ultimately writing that about Jesus, who suffered the greatest injustice of all time, humanly speaking. The just, the only one who could say he was just righteous, and perfectly so, who had done nothing wrong, the just died for the unjust, for us, for sinners like us. Now, Of course, one day, Peter was not released. Legend has it years later, Peter was crucified upside down because he said he was not worthy to die in the same way as his savior. One day, Peter wasn't released, but he knew. What Paul knew he knew that someone was looking out for him he knew that there was a greater release greater freedom that awaited him again the words of Paul the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom to him be the glory forever and ever amen one day every servant of Christ will be released free from sin our own sin and the sin of this fallen world around us but after the release that we see here, we also see this. Secondly, we see the servants raise their voices. The servants raise their voices in verse 24. Verse 23, after the release, they, they return to their friends. Don't miss that. How many friends? Probably more than 12, probably less than 5,000 that are mentioned in verse four of this chapter. They have friendship, they have communion and the gifts and graces of other Christians. And then it says they pray, they raise their voices somewhat spontaneously. It's an impromptu worship service, verse 24. And when they heard it, when everybody else hears the report of what happened, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. It's probably one person praying for the group. And they highlight God's character, notably his sovereignty. They know that God has orchestrated these events, the miracle, the sermon, the many conversions, the persecution, the eventual release. God ordained it all, predestined it all. They praise their sovereign creator. That's a a good way to begin a prayer, isn't it? It's scriptural. How does the Lord's prayer start? Our father in heaven, he's in heaven. That simple reminder tells you about his power, his sovereignty, his, his exaltation. Again, this is a biblical model for prayer. Maybe that's obvious. Maybe some of us need to remember the obvious. Maybe we all need this reminder from James Boyce. Prayer is our talking to God, he says. The scriptures are God's talking to us. He also says you pray in a right way when you pray scripturally. You study the scriptures in a right way when you study prayerfully. It's biblical begin our prayers by asking, by by praising God for who he is. It's also biblical to praise God amidst persecution and deliverance. Notice they're they're delivered. They immediately stop. They, They praise God for that. Is that our first instinct? When good things happen, we stop, we drop everything. We just praise God. Sadly, I may be more likely to, if I've had a hard day and I've been delivered from hardship I may be more likely to lament or vent or rant about my horrible day maybe we all need more of the example we see here maybe we need more of Paul's words to the Thessalonians chapter 5 1 Thessalonians verses 16 to 18 Paul says rejoice always pray without ceasing give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you Why don't we do that as often as we could? Perhaps we've forgotten that we can find comfort in God's power. Perhaps we've forgotten that we can find comfort in God's people gathered together to care for one another to pray for one another. Howard Marshall says the effect of persecution was to bind the members of the church together so that there was a common desire to pray. When we face trials and hardship, even persecution, let's hope that it has a similar effect. That it drives us closer to other Christians, and that it drives us heavenward in prayer. The servants were released, then the servants raised their voices, and then thirdly, the nations rage. The nations rage, verses 25 to 27. Now technically, the nations have already been raging, but. This is the next thing the disciples prayed about, having recognized the Sovereign Lord who created heaven and the earth. Now their prayers turn to the actions of God's creatures, in particular the actions of God's rebellious creatures. So they start out in this prayer, Sovereign Lord, and then verse 25, Sovereign Lord, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the holy spirit why did the gentiles rage if you look at psalm 2 it says why did the nations rage that word nations usually implies gentiles so that's what's going on there why did the gentiles rage And the people's plot in vain the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the lord and against his anointed or messiah or christ for truly in this city they were gathered together Against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Again, they're quoting Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2 there. They realize that what has happened to them, the persecution, the imprisonment, putting a gag order on the gospel. This is simply what has always been happening throughout history. It's rebellion against God. It's rebellion against his anointed, his Messiah. The essence of sin is rebellion. It's telling God, I do not want you to be my Lord and my God. I want to be my own Lord and God. I want to do what I want, not what you want, not what you command. Again, the disciples realize, the apostles, the group that's gathered here, they realize the Jewish leaders are not primarily rejecting them. They're rejecting God. In a sense, they don't take it personally. They realize what Jesus said. If they hated me, they're going to hate you too. John 15. So the nations rage. The nations will rage. The peoples will plot. Occasionally, they'll join together. They'll set themselves together against the Lord, gathering in opposition against his true and ultimate king. Now, in Psalm 2, originally, this had a particular meaning to the Uh, to the divinely promised and protected Davidic dynasty of Israel. You know, we forget that kings need encouragement too. God's chosen people, his chosen king, they would would face opposition. They would always face opposition. And so Psalm 2 was a sobering reminder. They needed to trust God just like we do. There's a cosmic battle raging and we're caught up in it. Earlier I said this battle, it created unity and prayer for the disciples. Well, John MacArthur puts an even finer point on that. He says, persecuted believers naturally draw together for mutual support. Perhaps one reason for the disunity in today's church is the lack of external pressure. And he wrote that back in 1994. I think there's more pressure on the church now. Does that mean that the church in the United States, it's more unified now? than it was in 1994. Maybe not. Does that mean we need to pray for more external pressure, even more persecution, so that we can be more unified? I'm not sure I have the guts to pray for that, even if I was convinced that's what we need. But I do pray that we'd be more unified as the nations rage around us, and some even in our own nation rage in rebellion against their creator. We live in a nation with many freedoms, nation that celebrates, I believe it's our 247th birthday this weekend. Tuesday counts as the weekend. Some think some of those freedoms are being eroded, be it freedom of speech, freedom of religion. I understand those concerns to some extent I share them. I'd also say I don't want to live anywhere else. And neither does Roger. That's not his real name. The first generation immigrant whose kids go to the same school as my kids, who happens to own a certain restaurant, not very far from here. Is our country perfect? What country is? But Let's not forget its blessings and its strengths. Let's also remember a biblical perspective on all this. The nations, the peoples of the earth, they will rage. That's what they do when they don't bow the knee to King Jesus. How should we respond? I think we should recognize the cosmic battle that's raging. We should faithfully preach the gospel, and we should also keep a close watch on our own lives. You've probably heard this phrase out of the Protestant Reformation. The church reformed is always reforming according to the word of God. So if our church isn't, say, as unified as we want her to be, let's pray for unity in the church according to the scriptures. If our church isn't as sanctified, as holy as we want her to be, let's pray, sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. If our country isn't as submissive to God as we want her to be, even then let's pray that the church might be salt and light to this nation, to any nation who rages against the very creator that our nation's founding documents recognize. We have the strength to do that because even though the nations rage, fourthly, what do we see this morning? We see that the Lord reigns. The Lord reigns, verses 27 through 28. The nations rage, it's what they do, including unbelieving Israel. Look at verse 27, still in the middle of this prayer. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, whom God anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. This prayer lumps the Gentiles and the the unbelieving Jews together. That's unusual in the scriptures. But it does that because neither one of them believed in the promised Jewish Messiah in Jesus. You know, whether you're a ruler like Herod or Pontius Pilate, whether you're a relative nobody in the geopolitical landscape, we all must repent and put our faith in Jesus or we will all likewise perish but we actually we we kind of interrupted this prayer here we interrupted the prayer mid-sentence what's the next point that the prayer makes Uh, again verse 27 paraphrased here Herod Pilate the gentiles the unbelieving Jews they're all united against Jesus verse 28 to do whatever your hand to do whatever God's hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Do you see what he's saying? Their opposition, the opposition of the nations who are raging, their opposition, their rebellion, could not prevent what God had already planned. Marshall says, it is futile for men to scheme against a God who not only created the whole universe, but also foresaw their scheming. MacArthur says, having done their worst, they merely succeed in fulfilling God's eternal plan. God's plan was to give his son up for the sins of his people. This is part of his plan. They had wicked intentions, but he had good and holy and righteous ones. MacArthur goes on to quote Psalm seventy-six ten: The wrath of man shall praise thee even in their raging. They simply fulfill God's purpose. The nation's rage but the Lord reigns, the nation's rage. Again, that comes from Psalm 2 verses 1 and 2. Do you know what verse 4 of that Psalm says? It says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. He laughs because he reigns. He knows it. He is not worried about what's going on around him. He laughs because he has already installed his king on his holy hill. What did that mean to Israel's kings back before King Jesus? I'm not sure they fully knew. They likely knew that God's rule and reign, his earthly kingdom, his chosen people in the Old Testament, that they were more secure than the raging nations around them. I think they knew that much at the very least, but we should be even more encouraged now because we know that great David's greater son Reigns on the true Mount Zion, from which he shall come to judge the living and the dead. King Jesus reigns. No matter what craziness is raging around us, King Jesus reigns. And one day he will come and he will drive away all the sadness, all the injustice, all the rebellion and wickedness. King Jesus reigns. King Jesus reigns, my friends, even during so-called Pride Month. I'm going to say more on that in a second. But first, if you're here this morning and you identify as LGB or T or any of the letters or symbols that are associated with the pride movement, I want to say we're glad you're here. We're glad you're here. I'd love to talk with you more. You're not ready for that. That's fine. Offer still stands. We're glad you're here. You may disagree with us on some things, but we believe that friends can disagree and do so lovingly. Whether you realize it or not, you probably believe that too. You've probably had a friend at some point who said, you know, I'm not sure that's a good idea. Maybe it was about something important. Maybe it wasn't. You may think we disagree on something that is the most important thing about you. That's because we as Christians don't think our desires or our sexuality defines us. We think our fundamental identity is determined by our creator. Who I am in Christ My Savior, that is more important than what I feel, more important than what I've done. That's some of what I'd love to talk with you more about, about how King Jesus can conquer our sin, our shame, our insecurity, and so much more. And then there there are others here this morning. You You may doubt in some ways. Maybe you wouldn't say it that way. You may doubt whether King Jesus is reigning during Pride Month. You wonder how this movement became so big so quickly. You wonder, what should, I, what should we do and say while all this is happening? I don't agree with everything I see on my TV. been wondering some of that too. But you know, I have a saying. You've heard this before. I can say more later. I can't say less later. And I do plan to say more later in a few weeks when, we, when I preach Genesis 1, 26 through 28. You might be wondering, if King Jesus reigns, why does he allow such a clear, such a loud celebration of a lifestyle that seems to be opposed to his word? On one level, I don't know. Maybe it's a chance for us to wrestle with the question about our own identity. Are we willing to identify with Christ, to follow Christ, even if the world hates us for it? Maybe it's a chance for us to clarify what we believe, a chance to read, read books like Kevin DeYoung's What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality, or Carl Truman's The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, or the abridged version, A Strange New World, Abigail Schreier's book on the transgender craze regarding young women in our country, or Rosaria Butterfield's The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, just a reminder, When Stephen Sprague taught his class about a year ago, we had a longer bibliography than those, but I don't know why King Jesus reigns in the way he does. I don't know why God makes every choice he does in the course of human history. His ways are higher than my ways and yours. His thoughts are higher than my thoughts, but I know King Jesus reigns and that knowledge should guide my thoughts, my words, my actions, my prayers, my emotions. I suppose we could end there, but I have one more point this morning. You see, after we see that the Lord reigns, we also see, fifthly and finally, that the Lord responds. The Lord responds, verses 29 to 31. This prayer has affirmed God's sovereignty even over the actions of wicked men, and now it asks God... To respond, verse 29 and 30. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. The guys who just got out of prison are praying for the same boldness that got them put in prison. They want to speak God's word. His message of salvation in Jesus Christ, with all boldness, it says. God answers that prayer, both in verse 31, and in a sense, he keeps answering that prayer. If you look at Acts 28, 31, the final verse of the book, it shows us Paul. He's in prison, awaiting trial, and it says, quote, He is proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance without hindrance. That's one word in Greek. Acts ends without really ending. (laughs) It's saying it kept happening. The gospel kept being proclaimed. It kept happening long before the energizer bunny. The gospel kept on going and going and going. Why did it keep on going? Because God responded. He answered this prayer. Verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness." Notice they're filled with the Spirit, but they don't speak in tongues. That that does happen again when the church expands geographically in Acts 8, Acts 10, Acts 19, I believe. But more consistently, when people are filled with the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, they speak boldly in the name of Jesus. God responds here by sending his spirit, by sending an earthquake, a sign of his presence. Just read Isaiah 6. That's a consistent note in the scriptures. Earthquakes are a sign of God's presence, even if they scare the life out of you. God responds, sends his spirit to empower insufficient servants to be bold witnesses. Why do I say insufficient servants? Well, first, because Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2 and 3, we are not sufficient for these things. We're not sufficient to proclaim the aroma of Christ, a fragrance of death to some, a fragrance of life to others. We're not sufficient, but God makes us sufficient, he goes on to say. And second, think about who these people are. Think about these disciples, close followers of Jesus. Back in Luke 23 and 24, book by the same author as Acts, Just a few months before, these disciples didn't even understand that the Messiah was supposed to die before he rose again. These disciples denied Jesus. They fled the scene. And now they're staring death and imprisonment in the face. They're boldly declaring the truth of scripture, the resurrection of Jesus, the gospel message, quoting the Old Testament to support it all. What a difference the Holy Spirit has made for them what a difference he can still make for us because the cosmic battle still rages but the final victory has been won and Christ the victor has sent the comforter the Holy Spirit to teach us what to say to give us boldness the nations are still raging they will until Jesus comes back until then let's pray that God's Spirit gives us boldness so that we don't fear their rejection or their threats, so that we love others enough to speak the truth in love. The cosmic battle still rages, but we aren't called to win that battle by ourselves. We're only called to be faithful witnesses to all that Christ has done, to all that he continues to do, to all that he will do. And what will he do? As you've heard me say many times, in the end, Jesus wins. Until then, his spirit empowers us to be his witnesses. Let's pray. God, our help in ages past, be our hope for years to come. Be our help. Be our power. Be our strength. Make us bold. Not because we are big and bold and powerful and strong in our own strength. Make us strong in the strength that God supplies. Make us courageous because we know the spirit that is within us, because we know whom Christ has sent to comfort us. Help us trust in you and help us walk in that strength. Give us boldness, not for our own sake, not so that others will praise us, but so that they might see our good works. They might hear our message and they might give thanks and praise to their father in heaven who loves them who sent his son for sinners like them. It's in his name we pray. Amen.